0: Good morning, Grace Chapel. How are you today? Oh, that was some weak weak sauce. Let's try that again. Good morning, Grace Chapel. How are we today? All right, good. Um, Let me get situated here just real quickly. Um, It is an absolute honor. It is an absolute uh, joy to be here today. Um, As uh, Jason just uh, mentioned, um, I was here uh, 12 years ago, actually, are you ready for this? I was sitting in my office this past week, and I think that this is kind of bizarre, kind of cool. Maybe God's sovereignty working, uh, but it was 12 years ago. Tomorrow would have been my last day at Grace Chapel. Isn't that crazy? I just think that's, ugh, I just think that's kind of cool. Uh, but anyways, um, I was the youth pastor here for three years. Uh, I referred to myself as the little pastor. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that or not, but there you go, Connie. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I am so thankful for my time here at uh, Grace Chapel. Uh, Like I said, I was here from uh, the years 2008 to uh, 2010 uh, while I was going to seminary down at uh, Moody Theological Seminary. Um, So thankful for my time serving underneath Pastor Pete. Um, just an absolute great uh, mentor of mine. Um, I'm very thankful for the time that he allowed me to come before you and to share God's Word. Uh, so uh, with that being said, uh, I have brought my lovely family with me today as well. Uh, many of you probably uh, remember my wife, uh, Lindsay, and then there is also my oldest daughter, Celia. She was about four or five uh, last time that we were here. She's 16 now. Uh, Yes, I just heard a gasp. So, uh, And then uh, my son Jude, he was one. Uh, He is 13 now. And then uh, we picked up another one along the way, Iris. Uh, She's 10. Uh, Her birthday is next month, and she'll be turning 20. So uh, with that being said, uh, before we dive into God's word here, let's actually go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you today, Lord, we acknowledge, first of all, that you are indeed the one true God, and we stand before you in awe of how you have revealed yourself to us through your Son and through your Word. And as we take a look upon the pages of Scripture, we see that you are sovereign, we see that you are omnipotent, we see that you are also gracious. We see that you are merciful, and we see that you are a loving God. And we want to thank you, ultimately, for your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of you. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for how you sent him to earth some 2,000 years ago to live a life of perfect obedience, to die on the cross as an atonement for our sins, how you powerfully brought him back from the dead, back from the grave, victorious over sin and death. And dearly Father, we look forward to his glorious return. Dearly Father, right now we come before you and I ask for your blessing upon this time as we take a look at your word to see what your word has to say to us about you and your son Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would open up our spiritual eyes, ears, and hearts to see, to hear, and to receive the truth that you have for us, that we would be able to build our lives upon it. And I pray for Grace Chapel here, that they would be able to take this truth and continue to build their church upon this glorious truth, Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we just want to thank you so much for this day, I want to thank you personally for this opportunity to come before your people here at Grace Chapel and to share your word with them. And we just come before you now. We just pray this prayer in your son's powerful name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, actually to the Old Testament. We're going to start off today in the Old Testament. I'm going to have you turn to your Bibles, or you can pull out your phone. You can open up your Bible app. And you can go to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Those are the two chapters that we're going to actually start in today. Uh, The passage that we're going to eventually get to in John chapter 8 finds its roots in this Old Testament passage here in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. In these two chapters, these two chapters, they actually share the sad story about how the ancient Jewish people, how they notoriously rebelled against God, how they refused to listen to God's word, and how they eventually rejected God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. In this passage, God's people, they found themselves right outside the land of Canaan. This is the promised land. This is the land that God had actually previously promised to their ancient ancestors, like the patriarch Abraham. Upon arriving at the border of the land of Canaan, Moses, who was their leader at that time, he selected 12 spies from the 12 tribes of the Jewish people to essentially go into the promised land to scout it out before they were to enter it and take possession of it. Upon the spies' return to Moses and to the rest of the Jewish people, they first reported on the condition of the land. And we see their reports on the condition of the land in Numbers 13, verse 27. It says there, It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And if we were to jump up to verse number 23, we would see that they had actually taken a sample of some of the fruit from the promised land. Grapes, pomegranates, and other fruit there. And so essentially, they came before the Jewish people, and they said, the promised land, man, it is truly awesome. It is awesome productive it will be it will easily be able to sustain us as a people group as a nation as we become a nation in this land not only when the spies returned though not only did they report about the condition of the land but the spies also reported back to the Jewish people about the current citizens of the land and we see The report on the current citizens in the very next verse in Numbers chapter 13, verse 28. Here the spy said, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And so essentially the spies, they came back to the Jewish people, and they said, Yes, the land, it is awesome. It's going to be able to sustain us. But the current re- residents there, the current citizens of the promised land, they are big and bad. That last reference there to a people that are associated with this one particular individual named Anak kind of indicates that the current citizens of that land may have even been supernaturally empowered, they were very scary dudes. And so after the spies return in verses 30 through 32 then the then the spies after presenting their report they went on to give their recommendation to the rest of the Jewish people There were 12 spies 10 of them they said yeah that's not a good idea to go back into the pro- or to go into the promised land If we go into the promised land the current citizens there They are going to have us for lunch. They're going to turn us into toast. We're going to be burnt toast. It's going to be, we're going to be, it's not a good deal. There were two spies, however. Do any of you know what the names of those two spies are? Caleb and and Joshua. There we go. Very good. Caleb and Joshua, they said, the land is awesome. And they said, yes, indeed, The current citizens there, they're big and bad. But guess what? We got God on our side. And if God tells us, if God has promised us this land, and if God tells us that he's going to be with us as we go into this land, then we're not going to have any problems at all taking possession of it and becoming a nation there. Unfortunately, as the Jewish people heard the report, and then listened to the recommendation, instead of being encouraged, the Jewish people, they became discouraged. Instead of choosing to trust and to believe God and obey his word, the Jewish people chose to not believe God and to disobey his word. This was not the response that God the jewish people's heavenly father wanted to hear he wanted his people to trust he wanted his people to place their faith in him not to become over or not to be overcome by fear and doubts and so as a result of their disobedience god as the jewish people's once again spiritual father He did what any loving father did with his children. He disciplined them. That is something that I think, just as a quick side note, we as parents today, that we need to keep in mind. It's become out of favor to discipline our children. We need to be disciplining our children. Right now, my kids are like, Dad, as a result of Excuse me. So desiring to teach his children a spiritual lesson. And it's not like God was like, I'm going to teach you a lesson, you Jewish people. My children. No, he he wanted to educate them. He wanted to sanctify them. He wanted them to become more like him. God, he ended up punishing them. And so then in the very next chapter, in Numbers chapter 14, In verses 26 through verse 35, God we see disciplined the Jewish people by prohibiting that faithless generation of Jewish people from inheriting the promised land. And what we see God doing in that passage there as he rolled out the consequences for their sins is that he banished them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that faithless generation of the Jewish people passed away. Now, it is incredibly important to note that throughout those 40 years of being underneath God's discipline, wandering in the wilderness, God, as the Jewish people's heavenly father, he did not abandon them. He did not abandon them. He didn't say, all right, you guys messed up. I'm putting you guys away for 40 years. Peace out. I'll see you later. That is not what God did. We see God, throughout those 40 years, he remained faithful to them. And his faithfulness to the Jewish people was manifested in two primary ways. First of all, throughout the 40 years, God faithfully fed the Jewish people every single day that god sustained the ancient israelites the ancient jewish people their lives as they wandered in the wilderness with manna this is a bread like substance that literally came from heaven arrived at their door arrived at their doorstep it's like uber eats i guess like in ancient times and so Every single day for 40 years, you can see them being faithfully fed by God. Not only did God faithfully feed the Jewish people, his children, God also faithfully led the Jewish people. Every day, he guided the ancient Jewish people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of A fire by night. If you are in your Bibles, I encourage you to go back just a few chapters. Go back to Numbers chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. God had actually already, prior to this unfortunate incident, had been leading them, had been guiding them in this way with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Numbers chapters 15, 16, and 17 talks about this. Now in this particular passage here, in the 15th verse, we're going to see a reference to what is referred to as the tabernacle. This is more or less a tent-like structure that the ancient Jewish people had and that they carried around with themselves and they set up whenever they came to a certain place for a certain amount of time they would set it up, and in that tent-like structure, and that's not to belittle the tabernacle or anything like that. That's just this is the only best way I can figure out how to describe it to you. But in the tabernacle, that is where God's presence manifested itself to the ancient people. So let's take a look at those verses. Numbers chapter 9, verses 15, 16, and 17. It says this, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, a cloud covered the tabernacle. That was God's presence being manifested, that cloud, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. Verse 16, so it was, not just some of the time, but it says, so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And now check out verse number 17. Verse 17, it talks about how the Israelites, the ancient Jewish people, they were guided by this pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire. And whenever the cloud lifted up from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. So Grace Chapel, that's how the ancient Jewish people moved around during those 40 years underneath God's discipline. God faithfully led them. God faithfully guided them. Now I know some of us today, we may be looking at this particular text, we may be rolling our eyes, thinking to ourselves, this is some ancient folklore, but Grace Chapel, this is God's word. And God's word, it is accurate. It is inerrant. This is not ancient folklore. This is historic facts. So do we believe this? I got a response over here. That guy right there, he believes God's word. Amen. Grace Chapel, do we believe this? Yeah. All right. That's a little bit better. Well, approximately 1,500 years later, In the New Testament, in John chapter 8, so you guys can go ahead and turn to your Bibles to that passage there, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus, he is depicted as being in Jerusalem, as celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This particular celebration occurred every fall, late September, early October, And it commemorated God's faithfulness to the ancient Jewish people as they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. A central part of the Feast of Tabernacles involved the Jewish people. For that particular week, they would actually move out of their homes and they would live in temporary structures, tents made out of branches and leaves. This particular act, it recalled to the Jews how their ancient ancestors lived for those 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. Another practice that occurred every night during the Feast of Tabernacles took place in the temple, and the temple was a permanent structure where God's presence dwelt during the Old Testament times and during the times of the New Testament. And so every night in the treasury of the temple, this was a specific location in the temple, once again, this permanent structure where God's presence dwelt, four large golden candelabras, you could say chandeliers, they would be lit. And then they would hoist them high over the temple, into the air, and these four large golden candelabras, they would not only illuminate God's house, they would not only illuminate the temple, but they would also illuminate practically all of Jerusalem. There is a collection of oral Jewish traditions that were brought together and composed later on. They're referred to as the Mishnah. And there is a comment in the Mishnah about this particular practice of these four large golden candelabras being lifted up into the air. And it referenced just how bright they were, how much they illuminated all of Jerusalem. And I quote from the Mishnah, there was not a courtyard not illuminated from the light. So essentially, the writer of this particular comment of the Mishnah says, everybody's backyard in Jerusalem was lit up during the Feast of Tabernacles every single night because of these four golden candelabras. Now, let's see how smart you guys are. I've got a lot of confidence in you. What do you think these four golden candelabras represented? If it goes back to the Old Testament, the time of them wandering around in the wilderness, what do those four golden candelabras represent? Oh, the pillar of fire. Represented the pillar of fire. So, it's in John chapter 8, It was during this particular week, during the Feast of Tabernacles, and even in this immediate context. If you're in John chapter 8, we'll just jump down real quick to verse number 20. Verse number 12 is where our primary text is going to be today. Verse number 20, though, kind of gives us a little bit of insight as to the specific location as to where Jesus uttered this I Am statement. But in Verse 20, it says that Jesus said these words, or he, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the tabernacle. So now go with me to verse number 12. So, in verse number 12, once again, it's in this particular week while Jesus is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and even in this immediate context in the treasury of the temple where Jesus declared in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. With this particular statement here, Jesus is essentially saying, you see these four golden candelabras? And you recognize how they illuminate all of Jerusalem at night? And all of you here, you know how these four golden candelabras, they actually resemble the pillar of fire that guided your ancient ancestors? Well, guess what? I am the one that they foreshadow. I am the one that they prefigured. I am the one that they point to, that find their fulfillment in. I am the one who is able to illuminate the world. And I am the one who was sent to guide God's people, you, throughout your lives here on earth. Grace Chapel, all throughout the Bible, we see this theme, we see this imagery of light And darkness being used to describe and to to compare and to contrast good from evil, right from wrong, truth from lies, life from death, righteousness from unrighteousness, godliness from ungodliness. Now, as we take a look at the Bible here and as we slowly but surely work our way through it, one of the things that we are going to quickly see is actually some very bad news. First of all, the Bible describes our world as a spiritually dark place. You, can, you don't have to do this now. You can do this later on. If you turn in your Bibles so or just write this down, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul there, he says that our world, it is shrouded in darkness. There's like this spiritual darkness that is covering it. And not only is, this, is there this shroud of darkness around our world, But our world, it is being dominated. It is being influenced by spiritual evil forces. As we continue then to work our way through the Bible, the news goes from bad to worse. It says not only is our world a spiritually dark place, but then the Bible begins to talk about who we are in our natural state. And the Bible says that we too are spiritually dark people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, those verses there indicates that sin has darkened our minds, making us ignorant of the one true God. It also says that Sin has caused us to be set up in rebellion against the one true God. In our natural state, sin has caused us to have this natural inclination, this desire to take part in dark acts and attitudes. And so Grace Chapel, as we take a look at the Bible, this is what the Bible says we live This is where the Bible says we live, and this is who the Bible says we are. We are spiritually dark. You could almost say blind people wandering around in a very dark world. If you don't believe the Bible's spiritual assessments of this reality concerning our world, concerning who we are, I encourage you just to turn on the news, right? Or just to reflect back on what has transpired in our world over the last couple of years. We are spiritually dark, blind people in our natural state wandering around in a spiritually dark world. As we continue to read the Bible, though, Yes, we get that bad news, but we also come upon some very good news, some glorious news. When we turn our attention to the Scriptures, the Bible, once again, utilizes this theme, utilizes this imagery of light to describe Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Can I get an amen? Now, this is not just a New Testament phenomenon. This theme is seen throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, this is the same passage where Handel's Messiah came from. Unto us a child is born, unto us. You guys know that song, right? Okay. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, 700 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah said this about the promised Messiah's arrival. The people who walked in darkness, so once again, there's that theme of darkness being used to describe the spiritual state of our world, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. I love that adjective there that's used in the English Standard Version. Great light. Not just a light, but a great light. And then it continues on. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Notice the adjective there to describe the spiritual state of our world. Not just dark world, but it's a deep darkness. On them a light has shone. And so we see this theme being used in the Old Testament to describe Jesus Christ and we see this theme of lights being used in the New Testaments to describe Jesus Christ too. When talking about Jesus, this is actually one of John's favorite themes that he uses in talking about him. The very beginning of this particular biblical account, this biblical narrative of the personal work of Jesus, John starts off, his gospel in chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 by saying, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it is no surprise that in John chapter 8 verse 12, that John includes this particular I am statement of Jesus when attempting to convey to his readers just exactly who Jesus is so that they may see the truth about him, that they may believe in him, and they themselves may hopefully be saved and experience salvation. So in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is seen declaring to his listeners once again in the temple, In the treasury of the temple, in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. Now, this particular I am statement, it is relevant to us as Christians, as believers, in two ways. It carries with it both personal and then also some practical implications. First of all, let's talk about its personal implications. Just how during the Feast of Tabernacles, these four Golden candelabras illuminated all of Jerusalem at night. In the same way, Jesus, as the light, he illuminates the truth in our truthless world. In the Gospels, though, Jesus is seen, in particular, illuminating the truth. You could even say exposing those whom he encountered. In Matthew chapter 22, we see Jesus encountering, or you can even say confronting the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of his day. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus Christ calls him out. He goes, you guys act like you are these spiritual leaders, but guess what? You are nothing more than blind guides. Then he goes on. He says, you guys, on the outside, you look like you're all holy and righteous and spiritual, but guess what? You are nothing more than whitewashed tombs. On the outward you look good, but on the inside, you're full of death decay and destruction. And then lastly, he calls out the Pharisees by referring to them as hypocrites. He says, you guys command all the people who sit at your feet, all of your students, to do X, Y, and Z. When you turn around and then you do A, B, and C, you're nothing more than a bunch of hypocrites. In another gospel, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 10... We see Jesus illuminating the truth. You could even say exposing this rich, young ruler. From the world's perspective, this young man, he had it all together. He was hardworking. He was successful. And he had all of the benefits that came along with it. He had wealth. However, deep down inside, this rich young ruler, he knew that he was missing something at the very core, at the very center of his being. And so he goes to Jesus, recognizing that Jesus may possibly have the answer to this. And he goes to Jesus and he asks him, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, with his words, begins to take his spotlight of light and shine it on the rich young ruler. He says, go and... And sell everything that you have. And the text goes on, and it tells how, unfortunately, this rich young ruler, he walked away disheartened, disappointed, because he knew that at the very center of his life was not the one true God, but it was his wealth. It was his success. And he couldn't give it up. He was exposed. One more person that Jesus Christ took his spotlight and shined it upon and exposed. One of my favorite guys in the Bible. It's Peter. Peter, I absolutely love this man. He just like puts his foot in his mouth all the time. I do the same thing quite frequently. But Peter, just hours before Jesus Christ is going to be betrayed, Just hours before Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross and die, Peter's like, Jesus, I'm with you through thick and thin. I'm with you to the very end. In fact, I'm willing to lay my life down to express my allegiance towards you. And Jesus Christ is like, oh, really? Well, let me tell you this. Before the rooster crows in just a few hours, you are going to deny me three times. Peter is exposed. That spotlight of truth is pointed directly at him. Grace Chapel, be aware as we follow Jesus, as we seek to draw nearer to the light, whether it be through diving deeper into Jesus' word and to the Bible, into the Scriptures, into the Gospels, whether we seek to draw closer to the light by trying to be with Jesus, His presence through prayer, or whether we just try to be around Jesus' people more, become involved in the local church, the local body of Christ, guess what is ultimately going to happen? Your life is going to be exposed. That spotlight, that spiritual spotlight is going to shine directly on you at one point and everybody is going to see who you really truly are. The truth about you is going to be made known. And Jesus, he will expose us for who we truly are. And who are we? We're nothing more than sinners in desperate need of a Savior. In the New Testament, not only does Jesus as the light illuminate the truth about ourselves, but we also ultimately see that Jesus as the light illuminates the truth, you could say reveals the truth about the one true God and who he truly is. In just a few chapters in John chapter 14, Jesus is going to be having this conversation with another one of his disciples, Philip. And Philip's like, okay, Jesus, We've been with you for quite a while now. Just come on, show us the Father. And Jesus turns to Philip and he says, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, I am God in flesh." Colossians chapter one verse 19, the Apostle Paul, he says, and this is one of my favorite verses, in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus just wasn't 50% God, 50% man. Jesus wasn't even 99.99999% God and then a little bit of man. No, Jesus was entirely God. He was completely divine. And another New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Great passage. The writer of Hebrews says, That Jesus, he is the exact imprint of God's true nature. So Grace Chapel, do you want to personally know what Jesus is like? Scratch that. Do you want to know who Jesus, or excuse me, do you want to know who God truly is? Look in the Bible. Look in the Gospels. And there you will see Jesus, illuminating the truth about the one true God. In the Gospels, in Mark chapter 4 and 5, we see Jesus calming the waves and then casting out demons. In this passage, Jesus is illuminating the truth that God, the one true God, that he is sovereign over all creation. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent over all things, physical and spiritual. In John chapter 8, the passage just prior to the verse that we're in today, we see Jesus defending, you could even say sticking up for an adulterous woman. Well, in this passage, Jesus is illuminating the truth. He's actually revealing God's mercy towards the undeserving. And then at the very end of John, in fact, at the end of all of the Gospels, John chapter 19, we see Jesus Christ dying on the cross as a substitute for sin, paying the divinely imposed penalty price for every single person who has placed their faith, their trust in him paying the price for their sinfulness and sin. At the cross, we see Jesus illuminating the truth, revealing the one true God's infinite and immense love for his children, for us. Those are the personal implications of Jesus as the light. Now let's dig in a little bit with what little time remains. The Lions are on in 50 minutes, so don't worry, I'll wrap this up soon. I'm a huge Lions fan, sorry. With its practical implications. The practical implications of Jesus as the light. Just how now in the wilderness, the pillar of fire guided the ancient Jewish people for 40 years. In a similar fashion, Jesus as The light guides God's people throughout their lives today. Go with me back to that passage there. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And then he says this, Whoever follows me, whoever follows me, this expression here describes the person who identifies Jesus not only as the son of God, not only as the their savior who sacrificed himself on the cross for their sins, but who also recognizes Jesus as their lord whose absolute authority over all of creation must be submitted to in their lives and whose instruction must be obeyed every day of their lives. This Grace Chapel is a true follower of Jesus. This is what a Christian essentially is. A Christian is a follower of Jesus who in submission to Jesus' authority who in obedience to Jesus' instruction is guided throughout their lives by Jesus. They go where Jesus wants them to go. They do what Jesus wants them to do. And they live their lives how Jesus wants them to live their lives. So with this understanding of what it means to truly be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, let me ask you this. Or as you're sitting there right now, you need to ask yourself this. Are you obediently following Jesus today? Are you obediently following Jesus' guidance in your life? Are you obediently following Jesus' guidance, let's say, in your neighborhood In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus instructed his followers, love your neighbor as yourself. Are you obediently following Jesus' guidance when it comes to your neighbors? You see them driving down the street. They pull into their driveway, and you're sitting there peering out your window with your cup of coffee, and you're frustrated because it's been three days and they haven't brought in their trash cans yet. And you're sitting there steaming. And then then they walk out from their garage and you're like, thank you, Lord, today's the day. And then they go to the mailbox, they get their mail, and they walk right back in, leaving their trash can still there. Are you obediently following Jesus' guidance? Perhaps you need to walk across the street, take their trash cans, and walk them up to the house for them. That is what it may look like to obediently follow Jesus' guidance guidance in your neighborhood? Are you obediently following Jesus' guidance when it comes to your finances, when it comes to your money? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus once again instructed his followers, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but are you using your finances, are you using your money with an eternal perspective in mind, seeking ways to use what God has blessed you with to further the kingdom of God here on earth and to grow his church? Are you a good steward of those finances that he has blessed you with? Parents, are you obediently following Jesus' guidance in your family when it comes to raising your kids? In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So it's not just bringing, them to church, bringing your kids to church on Sunday morning, bringing them back on Wednesday, but it's every single day are you seeking ways to obediently follow Jesus and teaching your kids whom God has made you a steward of and conveying to them a biblical worldview that is centered in Christ? Are you talking about Jesus in the Bible and the one true God as you take them to school on Sunday morning, as you pick them up from volleyball practice, or as you drive to the grocery store? Grace Chapel, are you obediently following Jesus' guidance in your marriage? Wives, as Paul instructs Christian wives in Ephesians chapter 5, are you submitting to your husband? Husbands, are you following Jesus' guidance when it comes to your relationship with your wife? Are you sacrificially loving her? Are you following, are you obediently following Jesus' guidance with your loved ones? We all have individuals in our life, whether it is family members, whether it is our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, who are not Christians. They do not believe. And we know as we study the Bible what their ultimate destiny is going to be like. Are we just going to family reunions? Are we just going to the coffee shop? Are we just talking on the phone with them, not saying anything to them about the one true God and his immense love that was perfectly demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ? Or are you obediently, once again, following Jesus' guidance in those particular relationships by being Jesus' ambassador, by being Jesus' witnesses to them, by going to them, seeking to make disciples of them and seeking to teach them all that he has taught us. Jesus goes on then to conclude this I am statement with a glorious declaration. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, and then he goes, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As a person obediently follows Jesus's guidance in every single aspect of their life, Jesus declares that their lives will no longer be dominated, no longer will be diminished, no longer will be, you could even say, destructed by the world's wicked ways or even their own stupid sinful mistakes. I've had people come to me recently and their marriage is falling apart and they're just not heading in a good direction. Pastor, we want you to fix this for us. I can't fix that for you, but I know who can. It's Jesus. No, this is what you need to do in order to fix your marriage. Wife, you need to submit to your husband. Husband, you need to sacrificially love Your wife, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to obey Jesus in this particular way? If so, then this mess that you've gotten yourself into, you're going to find yourself out of and you're going to find yourself in a healthy marriage. No, pastor, we can't do that. It's like the ancient Israelites, right? Taking them all the way up to the border of the promised land. Okay, this is what you need to do. You just need to trust Jesus do what he says and go on, and you'll be in the promised land. And like the faithless, disobedient Jews, sorry, we can't do that. Grace Chapel, I think there's at some point in all of our lives, we can all identify with that. Can I get an amen? As we obediently follow Jesus' guidance. We see, though, that our lives will no longer be dominated, will no longer be destroyed, no longer will be diminished by our sinful, stupid mistakes. We no longer will walk in darkness. Instead, Jesus promises that as a person obediently follows his guidance, their lives will be powerfully redeemed and powerfully redirected by him. Grace Chapel, we are spiritually dark people living in a spiritually dark world. But there's good news. After we've been exposed by Jesus, which is actually a good thing, as we come to recognize the truth about who Jesus is, that he's not only our Savior, but he's also our Lord, and we submit to his authority. The Bible tells us that Jesus will redeem us by bringing new spiritual life, you could say his light, into our lives. And then just as astonishingly, as we obediently follow his guidance The Bible goes on to tell us us that Jesus' life will progressively shine brighter and brighter and brighter through our lives, illuminating before us, revealing to us the path, the direction, just exactly what God wants us to do, the path that God wants us to take and to go in the Old Testament, following their disobedience and faithlessness, the ancient Jewish people, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. As they wandered in the wilderness, they, however, were not alone. God was faithful to them. He was with them, guiding them with a great light that was the pillar of fire. For 40 years, the Jewish people learned to follow God, the pillar of fire. And one day, guess what happened? That pillar of fire, God himself, led his people, his children, the Jewish people, ultimately where God wanted them to go. That was the promised land. In Grace Chapel, Jesus, he is not only the light of the world, but he's also, if you're here today, (laughs) if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, he's the the light of your life. And I know you as a community. I know that he's also the light of your church. Now it comes down to this. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to obey him? Are you going to follow his lead? Yeah, sure. The people out there, the situations from this perspective may look big and bad, might be a little scary, but guess what? God's going to be with you and He's going to get you where you ultimately need to go. Ultimately, for every single one of us here today, that is heaven. I cannot wait to get there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We want to thank you so much once again for this day that you have given us, this opportunity to come together like this, to Worship your holy, your magnificence, your righteous name to gain a little better understanding of just exactly who your Son is as the light. And dearly Father, I pray now that we as Christians, as followers of him, that you would empower us to take those steps of faith, of obedience, and follow after him. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we just want to thank you for um, all that you have done for us, all of the blessings that you have placed into our lives. But ultimately, we want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for sending him to earth. We want to thank you for his perfect life. We want to thank you for his atoning death on the cross. We want to also thank you for his victorious resurrection. And we are looking forward to his glorious return. We come before you today and we pray this prayer in your son's powerful name, Jesus Christ. Amen.